Uh, don't we have a lot to be thankful for today? I've been thinking about that. I'm going to do my best to stay here. I've been thinking about that all week. We have a lot as a church to be thankful about. We, we see God working in our church weekly. We saw two baptisms today, which tells me that God is growing commitments to Him and bringing people closer to Him. We are meeting in a safe, unified place. There's no drama, no arguing, no squabbling in this church. We are here for the same purpose, and we are seeing financial goals met as a church. God is blessing Ramsey Heights. Is that right? That is right. And, and those are all tier one things to be thankful for, things that, things that are way, way above tier two. But I want to go ahead and mention tier two as well. College football is upon us, Tier 2, right? I'm excited about that. I know some of you are not football fans, and, and then there's the rest of you who are living your lives the right way. But I wanted to share a story with you that I think will transcend whether or not you understand college football. I've got a picture coming up here. This is Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts was the starting quarterback for Alabama in 2016. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Jalen Hurts was in the Heisman conversation during the first part of his uh, college career. A new start at Alabama. He's winning games. People are talking about him. He might be the best player in college football. It was an amazing story. And I have never watched anybody so prolific that can go from being an emotionless robot to running like Speedy Gonzalez I've ever seen. He, he was crazy to watch. In 2017, he took Alabama and he took them all the way to the college national championship. But at that game during halftime, after falling behind, Coach Nick Saban, who is a genius, albeit an evil genius, he decides to bench his starting quarterback, who has been talked about as a Heisman candidate, to put in a freshman named Tua. I can't say his last name, so I'm not even going to try. Put in a freshman named Tua. Now, let me ask you this. How would you feel if you went from being talked about as one of the greatest players that year in college football to sitting on the bench and riding behind somebody who was just starting? How would you feel in that moment? And I want to be clear about this as I'm talking about this. Jalen Hurts was an excellent player. He's currently in the NFL. He is an awesome player. It's not like he was a bad player and a better one come along. Jalen Hurts was one of the best, but maybe Tua was just a little bit better than him. The next season, everybody talked about the quarterback competition between Jalen and Tua, who will win. And Jalen loses his starting job for the next season to Tua, the second quarterback. Now, now why do I tell you that? I want to tell you this about Jalen Hurts and, and the reason I respect him is most players in that particular situation. He was without a doubt a top five player in the country, maybe top two. He made the decision to stay at Alabama. And while at Alabama, next picture please, while at Alabama, he supported his teammates. He became the biggest fan. He was coaching Tua. He cheered for him and he celebrated with him. This man who had stole his job as the starting quarterback. Even Jalen Hurts' teammates came up to him and they're like, why don't you leave? Like, you could start at any college and you're stuck here as number two. You're too good to sit on there. But as he was interviewed about that, he said, I, I gave myself to something bigger. It, it wasn't about me. It wasn't about me having the starting job. What, what this was about was the team and building other people up. And, and this shocked the sports world because it was so unfamiliar for somebody in that world to be so unselfish, to give to others, to support others at the expense of himself. I think I know why. 
Both of the young men you see on the, on the screen, both of these men are outspoken about their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and that explains something about both of them. We're focusing on Jalen. As they're ordinary people, but they don't behave in ordinary ways. Today we are finishing up our ordinary series. Just to recap what's been going on, we've been learning about Stephen, one of our earliest deacons. And I'm telling you all, I can't stand behind this pulpit. I might have to carry that microphone around. One of our earliest deacons, um, he has been arrested for preaching Jesus Christ. He has been falsely accused of blasphemy. He is at his trial. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen the trial and what they accused him of. And last week, we heard his defense. And when he was given an opportunity to defend himself, he did not defend himself in the sense of saying, well, this is why I'm innocent. He defended Jesus Christ with two major points, is that Jesus Christ fulfills the need for the law, and he fulfills the need for the temple. And then he finishes his sermon and his defense. He looks out at the people he is on trial with and he says, and you rejected Jesus Christ. You killed him. It was you. And that's not ordinary. We're going to continue in that story. If you've got your Bibles, we are in Acts chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 54 here. Listen, listen to the reaction. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Keep your Bibles open. I went a little fast there. Keep your Bibles open. We're coming back to that. This is how angry they were. He gives them this message that Jesus Christ fulfills the need for the Jewish law. Jesus Christ fulfills the need for the temple. His presence is with us. And he says, you killed him. And they were so angry that they were grinding their teeth. And I don't think that means that they bit him. Other translations worded a little differently. Have you ever been so mad where you're just, you're just, you, you ever been around teenagers for very long? They will make you that mad. Just, just stop. That's how mad they were as a whole group of them, over 70 in this council. They were so mad at Stephen. And I want to look at the difference between these men and Stephen. Look at the difference in how they handle the situation. On one side, you've got Stephen. He is on trial for his life. Literally, these people mean to kill him. He's being lied about. He's being falsely accused. He's having to sit here and watch all this unfolding around him. But if you look back at the end of chapter 6, he's sitting there calmly, unbothered. He's able to speak with elegance about Jesus Christ. And then you look at the difference in how on the other side the crowd is handling this. Stephen is on trial for his life and he's calm. But these people, they heard words they didn't like. And they got so mad they started grinding their teeth. They were that bothered by them. Now let me ask you something because I think I see something familiar in American culture in the scripture. Which one are you? Which one am I? Are, are we the kind of people that, that go through amazing trials, major adversity, and we go through it calmly with a trust in Christ? Are we the kind of people who get worked up and mad and grind our teeth over the smallest things like what somebody said to us or about us? Which one are they? And I can tell you, this may tell you something about your spiritual life. See, on one hand, we could be ordinary. We could be like them. The, the emotions of outside things, they kind of control us. They control our actions. They control how we treat people. We call that a mob mentality. And we see a lot of that today. A mob mentality where we get in a group of people who believe or think or see things the same way we do. And we just get so frustrated at somebody who would dare say, I don't, I don't agree with that. That's where we see in today's world the riots that we've seen, the murders that we've seen, the political movements we've seen, people not acting like themselves. And we're going to see this mob mentality in this council as they attack Stephen. Spoiler alert, as we continue through the story, if you didn't know, they're going to grab Stephen and they're going to go murder him. That's what their plan is, is to go murder him. 
Psychology Today lists these reasons for this mob mentality. And I found this interesting in our culture and in our lives and in our world right here. Mob mentality comes, number one, from a sense of lost identity. When we find our identity in a group or an organization or something like that, instead of finding our identity in who I am, it makes us susceptible to be fallen into this mob mentality where, where everybody's the enemy except for people who say the same thing that I am. Secondly, when you have mob, mob mentality, there is reduced accountability. Because we think if everybody else is doing it, we can do it too. It's just normal. It's, it's ordinary. Have you guys ever heard the saying, keeping up with traffic? You know what that means? That means I'm speeding, but it's okay because everybody else is speeding too. And I'm just, I'm keeping up with traffic. I see some guilty faces out there, right? Everybody else going 10 miles over the speed limit. I don't want to get in their way, so I'll go with them. Reduced accountability. Everybody else is doing it, so I can too. And then third, when we lose our identity and we lose our sense of personal accountability, this opens us up to be drawn into the heightened emotional state of the people around us, the people we share our identity with, and the people that we cheat through life with. And that's what you see with this, with these people here. These were religious elites, dignified men, and they're so angry, they're grinding their teeth, grabbing a man and taking him outside to murder him. And I see this in our society. I see it in our Christians. And there is a psychological effect to that, but, but I think also there's a spiritual effect to that. One of my pastors that I, I really enjoy listening to his commentaries, he has a saying. He says, all truth is God's truth. That's, God, that's Josh King. I love that. All truth is God's truth. I'm going to add something to that this morning. If all truth is God's truth, then all lies are Satan's lies. All lies are Satan's lies. And so he pulls us into the identity lie that I am my job or my family or my political party or my economic status or my race. That's what I am is that's who I am. I fall into a group with this. He pulls us into the emotional lie that says what you feel in this moment should be right and everybody should bend to your emotions. He pulls us into the accountable lie that says if everybody else is doing it, you're not accountable for it. And you may have never been in a, an angry mob, but if you find yourself constantly bothered and frustrated and mad at people when they don't agree with you politically or you watch the news and it just runs all over you, you may be like me. And the truth is your sense of group identity and your sense of emotions may be guiding you. Now, compare that in that group, that mob mentality, compare that to Stephen. Compare that to Stephen. Stephen is calm in the chaos. And he exhibits what we call the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. All of those things. Those are not just fancy words that are found in the Bible. You can see it in the lives of true believers. That they handle the chaos and the hardship even worse than somebody disagreeing us with grace. And that's because Stephen did not give in to the lies. Stephen did not give in to the lie about his identity. He believed the truth about his identity, that he is an individual, that he is worthy of the love of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ loved him enough to die for him, and he belonged to Christ. He believed the emotional truth that what I feel at this exact moment is not the most important thing going on in the world. And he believed the accountability truth that not only will he be held accountable for his actions, but those who did bad things to him would be held accountable for theirs. And out of these truths, you see in this, Stephen, this amazing peace. In the last moments of his life, you see this amazing peace where nothing seems to bother him. I'm going to ask you again, where are you? Are you number one, everything bothers me and I get mad? Or are you number two, is nothing shakes my faith in God? And I think the answer to that question will tell you where your heart is. Is your heart in the spirit or is your heart, is it in the mob? 
being controlled by those around you. Our first take-home truth is this, is how we respond to adversity reveals our heart condition. If you identify yourself as that person who is calm in the peace, what that tells us is that, that you've got to trust in God's provision. It'll tell you that you have a belief in the causes of Jesus Christ and God and that you have a connection, a daily and a moment, every moment connection to Jesus Christ. But if you find yourself in the other, what that tells you is, is you've got a faith problem. You believe that what's going on now is bigger than what God can do through what's going on right now. You've got a heart problem because you're focused and worshiping the wrong things. And, and at all, last, you've got a love problem. Chances are you love something more than you love God. Now, as we continue in and we see how Stephen handles this, I want myself to be like Stephen. I want to be the person who handles major adversity with, with calmness, with love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. And look, look at what happens to Stephen in these moments. Let's read verses 55 and 56. But he, speaking of Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. What an amazing experience for a Christian. Stephen, standing here at his own trial, he gives this, this spirit-filled testimony of who God is and what Jesus Christ came to do. And then he looks up. Some people question, did he see a vision or did God just allow him to think it? No, it says he looks up and heaven opens up to him. He physically sees into heaven. For some reason, God, God is so close to him at this moment. He says, Stephen, see into the spiritual realm. But what's important is what he does see. Number one, he sees the throne of God the Father. He sees God sitting there on his throne in all of his glory, with all of his righteousness and all of his purity. And then who does he see at the right hand of God the Father? There stands Jesus Christ, just as expected, just as promised by Jesus Christ himself that he would be standing at the right hand. But there's something different about this passage than every other place we see into heaven in Scripture. There's one small difference. Do you know what it is? In every other scripture in the Bible where Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, in every other scripture, Jesus Christ is seated. But in this moment, as Stephen nears the end of his life, Jesus Christ is standing. And there are many theories to why he may be doing this. Some people have theorized that Jesus is giving Stephen a standing ovation for his commitment to God. They believe that possibly Jesus, knowing that Stephen's life is about to be over, is already interceding and claiming him as one of his children to God the Father. And it may possibly be that Jesus was standing preparing to welcome Stephen. But that's not the arguments that I believe. I think what we see in Jesus, whether it's any of those or not something else that nobody has thought of, I believe what we see in Jesus Christ here is an act of passion in this moment with Stephen. Think about it. When you're passionate about something, you must stand, right? Like you can't, you can't just sit there when something good happens. You ever been to a football game? And that, that pass goes for 82 yards and a touchdown. What does the whole stadium do? Everybody jumps to their feet. You can't stay standing at that moment. You're passionate about it. I've seen you moms watching kids, and it doesn't even have to be your kid. A kid somewhere falls, and all the moms just jump up. Like, like we, we kept, is everything okay? They might not run over there, but they're going to be on their feet. What do we do when we hear the best news? We, we jump to our feet. What do we do when we hear the worst news? We jump to our feet. And I think what we see here in this story of Jesus Christ is that Jesus is so passionate about his follower, about Stephen, that he is brought to his feet. He is so engaged in what's going on. And he is passionate and he must stand. 
Our, our next take home truth is this is God is present and engaged even during your hardships. And you've been there. I've been there where, where things are going bad and we start, we start wondering about God. Is like, did God quit hearing my prayers? Like, I prayed for this not to happen. God, why aren't you, why aren't you answering my prayers? Did God, did God forget me? Did he forget I was here and I needed him? I hurt so bad and I asked for change and, and it just didn't happen. God just must not have cared. But what this story about Stephen tells us is differently. Even though Stephen was going through hardship, even though he was hurting, it says the exact opposite is true, is that Jesus Christ was passionate about him in that moment, though he did not choose to save him. And so what we see in this story is a story of commitment. We see a story of Stephen's commitment to Christ. Under the penalty of death will he defend Jesus Christ. But more importantly, as we see a story of Jesus Christ's commitment to Stephen, even in his hardship when he may have appeared to be silent, he was leaning forward, standing, engaged, and intent on what Stephen was going through. See, I love it put this way. Jesus, who died for Stephen, is standing in support of Stephen, who is about to die for Jesus. Now, that is a picture of what it means to be a Christian. That mutual commitment, Stephen's commitment to Christ, Christ's commitment to Stephen. And, and some of us in here, we don't believe it that way. Some of us have went to church and we believe that our religion and our faith is all about my commitment. What can I give to God? I better be good enough for God. I've got to give him everything in order for him to love me. And that's, that's wrong. Some of us also believe that the entirety of Christianity is all about God's commitment. That I can, I can say something, I can be a, a prayer, I can say a prayer to somebody, some, something in the sky, and I can act however I want to because God has got it. No, a picture of Christianity is our commitment to Him and His commitment to us working together. And it's hard when we read something like this because it, it doesn't feel like God's committed to Stephen in this moment. It feels, like, it feels like Stephen is going through a hardship and God is ignoring him. It feels like somebody should be crying out for Stephen and God is ignoring them and he just stands there. And some of us have experienced that when we felt like, it doesn't feel like God's very committed to me. When somebody we love is sick or we've been treated unfairly, we look out in the world and we see all of the brokenness and the hurt and we ask, where is God? Isn't that an argument unbelievers will give us? Where is your God when people are, are being hurt and killed? But Christians believe this, that Christ's presence is enough for us. That he brings us goodness, goodness and hardship. And because God is there, the hardship is worth going through. I've got another picture coming up here. In 1956, this is Nate Saint. In 1956, Nate Saint and four other missionaries were trying to reach the Wadani tribe of Ecuador, a remote tribe out in the middle of the jungle who had very little contact with the world, who still lived in the Stone Age. Nate Saint got into that airplane, and he flew away, leaving his five-year-old son, Steve, watching him go. Later that day... As the missionaries tried to make contact with the Wadani again, the people with whom they were trying to share Christ with killed each of them with spears and left their bodies on a sandbar just out in the open. Steve spent a lot of time after that asking why. Why did my dad fly away and never come back? God, why would you take good men who give their lives to travel across the world to spread the gospel for you and let them die this way? And Steve's not the only person that's asked that. I've asked that. God, why would you let this happen? You've asked that. And it's, it's ordinary. 
God, where were you? But back in the Bible, the story of Stephen tells us that, that God was there. And what I want us to take away from the, Stephen story, or the story of Stephen today is that Stephen's story is bigger than him. It's not about what he experiences in this moment. It's about how God uses his story. Back to the Bible, verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. This is the crowd. And ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen calling upon God saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen says out loud, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. This was heresy to the Jews. They were so angry with him. They, they didn't want to hear Stephen confirm what Jesus had promised that he would do. And so this mob mentality takes over and there's, there's only one thing to do. We must kill Stephen. The mob takes over. The emotions take over. They drag Stephen out of the city. And they take rocks as a crowd. And they, they throw him down in a pit. And above them, they all take turns throwing big, heavy rocks at his head and his face. And that's how they killed him. That's how they murdered him. And in this moment, what Stephen prays, Stephen prays, Lord, receive my spirit. I've heard a lot of people over my life try to define what faith is. If you want a definition of what faith is, what saving faith is, this is it. It's when you look into the face of death and what you think is Jesus Christ. That's what faith is, and we see that in Stephen. But he says something else. With, with rocks raining down upon him, can you imagine the agony of somebody throwing a rock and it hits you in the head? Another rock in the chest, the next one in the back. In the agony of this moment, surrounded by hatred and anger, Stephen cries out and he says maybe one of the most powerful things ever said by a Christian. He says, Lord, don't hold this against them. What a powerful moment. And what it looks like to be a follower of Christ is being like Christ. It's very reminiscent of what Jesus cried out from the cross. God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Stephen, in his death, with the hatred and anger around him, we still see this selflessness and this heart for others in him. He says, God, forgive these people that are doing this to me. Don't let them suffer for this. You notice what he didn't pray. He didn't pray, God, save me. He wasn't like Elijah in the Old Testament and said, God, send some bears and kill these people. No, no. His heart was so intent on his mission and the mission that God gave him. He said, God, save these people. Forgive them. Don't punish them for what they're doing to me. And what I love about this, if you've ever wondered in a moment where you're going through a hardship is if God has forgotten you. If you read the story and go, God must have forgotten Stephen to let him go through that hardship. God heard that prayer and God answered that prayer. Let's talk about the power of prayer of a righteous person for just a second. God looked down upon his beloved Stephen being murdered by rocks. You have to think his wrath must have been hot against somebody who would kill his believers. And yet God put aside his wrath to hear the prayer of a believer who said, God, forgive them. God, let them come to know you. One of the men standing here and one of the men involved in this was, was a young man named Saul. We probably know him as Paul. 
And in the very next chapter, after Stephen prays, God, don't let them suffer for this. God, don't punish them for that. We see the next chapter, God goes out in pursuit of Saul. He doesn't wait for Saul to come to him. He goes to Saul. He goes to Paul. And this was God's plan. Is Stephen died, but his death opened a door to something bigger. God knew that if Stephen would give his life with his heart and pray, that God could answer that prayer and he could pursue Paul. Our next take-home truth is this, is God is working a bigger plan even in our worst moments. I want you to hear that today. I don't know who this is for. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what we may go through in the next week. But God is working a bigger plan than what you're experiencing at this moment. After Paul becomes a Christian, let me, let, me, let me read you the resume of Paul. Paul planted over 20 churches. He delivered the gospel to every major city in the Mediterranean area. He preached to huge crowds, 13 or 14 books in your New Testament. Nearly a whole third of all scripture recorded after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was written by the hand of Paul. Paul was instrumental in correcting Peter, one of the original 12 apostles. He mentored countless pastors, and his instructions on faith have been studied for mil by millions over 2,000 years. One scholar writes this about Paul, if not for the prayer of forgiveness of Stephen, we would not have Paul. A prayer that was prayed by a dying man with a passion for the world around him activated God's plan to do something bigger that lasted much longer than Stephen's life ever could have. Through the hardship of a believer, God brought about one of the greatest gifts that we ever have. He brought about a, a man who wrote our scripture it was God's plan all along. I've heard it said over our life, what, what is your biggest contribution to the kingdom of God? What have you done for God? And, and me, I try to think of the things I've done. Well, I taught Sunday school for a while. I used to high-five teenagers all the time. I, I, I serve in a church. I let you throw whipped cream pies in my face every VBS. There's a special place in heaven for me. Right? I, we think about what we do. I've heard it said, and you've probably heard the quote, well, the biggest thing you do for God may not be what you do, but who you raise. Have you guys ever heard that? Parents, you think about that. I'm going to add to it, though, because there's no, no list, no end, uh, there's no end to the list of things that God may possibly do in this moment, or may possibly do in us. I lost my place in my thing. Is the biggest thing we ever do may be our heart for God and hardship. And how we handle the rough times in life. I want to be clear. It's, it's not the money you give to the red envelope drive. It's, it's not how often you come to church. The biggest thing you may ever do is let Christ flow through you in your hard times. When everybody wonders, why would you behave that way? Nate Saint died and left his five-year-old son, Steve, without a father. But the passion of the, or the amazing part of this story is that the family members of Nate Saint and those other missionaries that were killed, the female family members, loved the Wadani so much that they went back to Ecuador and they began to try to reach the very people who had murdered their brothers and their husbands and their fathers and their sons. And when they were able to connect with the tribe, the tribe was so moved because they realized this is not ordinary for people to behave this way. It is not ordinary for people to love after we have murdered their family members. And most of that tribe became believers. Stephen, who lost his father to that tribe, spent every summer with that tribe. And at age nine, Steve became a follower of Christ and he was baptized by this man. This is Minkai. He is a pastor and a leader of the Church of the Wadani. And he is also the man who threw the final spear through Steve Saint's father, Nate Saint. This is the man who baptized a nine-year-old Steve Saint.
Their relationship between Steve and, and Mikai, Minkai has been ongoing for years. As a matter of fact, Steve's saints call Minkai grandfather. This is the power of the love of Christ in us. It is transformational. This is not ordinary. God changes people when they come into contact with His love. Where a son of a murdered man can fall in love and call father to the man who killed his dad. Where a murderer can come to know Christ and invest in the children of the people that he murdered. Minkai says this. He says, We acted badly. Badly until they brought us God's carvings. That's the Bible. That's how he refers to the Bible. Then seeing his carvings and following his good trail, now we live happily in peace. Let me ask us a question. Do we really believe in Christ transforming us? Do we really believe in Christ transforming those around us? Do we believe an ordinary person with God's power can accomplish extraordinary things? If so, what are we doing about it? This is what Minkai would follow that up with. He said, how long did you have God's markings before you brought them to us? Maybe if we had known sooner that the Creator did not see it well that people should live angry, hating and killing for no reason, we could have walked God's trail sooner. If we could tear down these walls of this church and turn our speakers up, there are people who could hear this sermon that need to hear the message of God's Word. It's all around us, and I have to question us as a church. I have to question myself, what are we doing about it? Are we really passionate for God? Minkai died last year, but not before he spent many years traveling all over the world with Steve Saint. There's another picture coming up here. This is that young five-year-old boy in Minkai. I love Minkai. Look at that smile. Can you feel Christ in that smile? And traveling the world, they shared the story of Christ's love for that tribe and those missionaries with hundreds of thousands of people. And they shared the message that ordinary people are sought by God, loved by Him, and can be changed. And the opportunity for that message to make it by hun to hundreds of thousands of people was bought by the blood of five missionaries and Christians, followers who loved and trusted God in hardship enough to continue to follow Him. As a young boy, Steve Sane asked why. God, why, why did my dad have to die for this? Why did I have to grow up without a father? But Steve Sane would tell you today as, as he realizes that it wasn't that God didn't allow it, that his father's death was part of God's plan to do something bigger. In, in Minkai's obituary, he quotes Genesis. He says, what men meant for evil, God used for good. Our last take-home truth is this, is God will be glorified in our pain. Last year, Minkai died, and, and he, he entered into the arms of Jesus, who welcomed him as a son. To the cheers of Nate Saint and the other missionaries that he helped murder. Just the same way that Paul walked into the heaven, and to the cheers of Stephen, who prayed for him. And when I ask us about our faith, I ask us, is this the kind of faith that we have? That we have faith in God's goodness and the hardship and in the rough times and when we don't understand it? Do we trust in His plan for His glory and our hardships? Can we celebrate our suffering if it means that He is going to get glory? Can we die for ourselves because His glory is our ultimate goal?